So as I mentioned, tipped workers need to have a little more separation in their accounts to set up a benefit system. So I remember going to Chase and saying, I need to open up six accounts. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Barbara Sloan, author of Tipped. But before we do that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Well, Cody, as you know, we just got back from Mexico last week, and you know, I thought, what better thing to do than hit the road again and, and really shock the system from a climate perspective? So we flew out to Salt Lake City. On Saturday, um, you know me, I spent plenty of time in the lounge, got to the airport early for the Delta Lounge in Austin, which is, which is a great little lounge. So yeah, we flew into Salt Lake City on Saturday and then made our way up to Park City where we're spending the week to do some skiing uh, to celebrate my birthday this week. Well, happy birthday, Justin. That is quite a shock to your system. And I was actually expecting a shock to my system being back in Massachusetts. But as we just were talking about before we hit record, it was 70 degrees on Friday it was 60 and raining on Saturday. So unfortunately, I really wanted to get some skiing in because I'm afraid that it's going to be the last I get in this season. But the weather did not permit that. But in other news, I started working on the Airbnb that we purchased in mid-February. So basically all the stuff that we ordered on Wayfair, Amazon, you name it, finally came in. So we started putting stuff together. We painted a room. We taped off another room that needs to be painted a little bit of work that needs to be done, probably looking at three weeks out from being officially launched, but I'm really excited for it. We got all the, you know, we get the okay from the state of Massachusetts. Now we have most of the furniture done. We have a couple more hours of painting left and then we should be ready to rock. So we'll keep the listeners updated. Justin, I know you're going through a similar process with your primary residence. Hopefully the city of Austin pulls through and gets you that dang permit. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like the city of Austin is a, a little bit more lengthy process than the state of Massachusetts. Fortunately for me. But Justin, that's enough about us and our personal lives. Just want to take a quick moment to remind everyone about the awesome spreadsheet that Justin was so kind to put together for this audience. Yeah, Cody, I'm excited to make this available to all the listeners. It's the spreadsheet that I use personally from the time I started in 2015 when I had 38K to track. And now I've got this spreadsheet that shows everything I've spent all the way up to today. We're busted over that million mark. And so it's a tool that I've found kind of stood the test of time. It's got all the categories in there for you. And I think it's just a really simple tool that's worked really well for me. And I hope it works well for the listeners. All right, Justin, I can't let you get away with not hyping yourself up enough because I've seen this spreadsheet and it is just all encompassing. It tracks all of your expenses. It tracks your net worth month to month. It tracks your income. It has kind of a ledger of all of your different accounts, whether that's bank accounts, 401ks, IRAs, anywhere where your money is sitting, Justin has a place for it. And so basically what Justin did was he took his spreadsheet that he uses himself. He made a template version for all of you guys to use. And he went ahead and recorded a video to show you exactly how he uses it month to month to track his net worth, income, and expenses. You can grab all of that for free at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. All right. So on today's episode of The Fi Show, we have on Barbara Sloan from Tipped Finance, author of Tipped. Barbara specializes in a really unique niche. I met her at FinCon 2021, and I just felt like she was serving an audience that hasn't really been talked to specifically. So Barbara has decades of experience in the tipped industry. So think bartenders, waitresses, 
people who work as a barber or a hair salon or people who are professional dancers. There's so many of these professions that are paid primarily in tips. And there's a lot of things that us who don't get paid primarily in tips don't think about when it comes to handling those finances differently. And Barbara just kind of lays out that roadmap. Like you said, Cody, this is definitely an underserved kind of community, and it's really cool to see Barbara tackling this subject. And it's one thing I love about the podcast, right? We get people on the show, and we get to expose the listeners to things that maybe they're not thinking about. And it is a really interesting angle. Barbara gets into the kind of differences between how they're going to handle saving for retirement, planning out their expenses, maybe things they'll run into from different types of businesses, even like how you should choose a business that maybe you want to go work for to maximize the amount of tips you could be looking at. It's a lot of great information in here, whether you're in the tipped industry or not. So if you hear some links that you want to go check out, or maybe you know someone who could really benefit from this episode, you can grab and share that at thefyshow.com slash tipped. That's thefyshow.com slash T-I-P-P-E-D. Take it away, Barbara. I uh, got my first job when I was 10 or 11. I was a paper person and I had three blocks which was my route, delivering papers. And I probably had about 30 houses. And I loved that job because I got to meet all my neighbors. And I loved the holiday season because I got tips. I got to know who was an early payer and an on-time payer and who to be frustrated with. Like I had this little mini job at 11 where I was just like, oh man, so-and-so at this address is a slow payer or so-and-so loves it when you put their paper in a plastic bag, even if it's not raining. So that was kind of my first foray into having my own personal money, having a piggy bank, folding and keeping my money. Yeah. So that was probably one of my earliest money memories. And then when I was 12, one of my parents moved out of our home and that was pretty life altering for me. So in an instant, I went from being a pretty carefree 11-year-old to being a 12-year-old who paid the bills and wrote checks and did the laundry and did all the cooking and the cleaning. And, you know, I had a parent who worked night shifts. And so I was alone a lot, two older siblings who had moved out. And so those are also very strong money memories for me. They left me in a scarcity mindset place where... I felt there was not enough and we were in a debt cycle. And so that took me a long time to get out of. And it took me a few times of getting myself into credit card debt over the years to understand how to get out of that. And when you had something like that at such a young age, was it something you could kind of recognize that this isn't normal maybe compared to some of your other friends, that this was something stressful? Or did it kind of seem like, well, this is just the only life I know? I mean, obviously, it happened after you were 11 or 12. It wasn't the only life you'd ever known. But like, were you able to comprehend what was going on at that age? I grew up outside of Detroit in a suburb that was low to middle income. And I would say there were definitely other households where there was single parents or absent parents or two parents and there were substance use issues. So it was not totally unusual for me. I wasn't an outlier. So as you progress, you know, impressive kudos to you, first of all, for getting that first side gig when you're 10 years old and then continuing to work and pay the bills and do all that good stuff. What did jobs look like, you know, moving through high school? I know obviously we're going to talk a lot about the tip industry here. Like, did you get a serving job when you were old enough or, you know, what did the income and I guess expenses as well look like as we progress through the years? So I'm not sure if anyone remembers this 
fast food chain, but it's called A&W. And yeah. it's a hot dog place. And they had the roller skating waitresses that served car hop style root beer and hot dogs. And so that was one of my first jobs. And I worked at JCPenney, which was a retail chain, folded a lot of sweaters. I worked in the cash room there. So I got to like count people's tills at the end of the night and help out. Those are my main jobs in high school. When I turned 18, I got a job as a receptionist at a general contracting firm. And that was my first office job. That was my grown-up real job when I turned 18. But it also gave me a lot of false confidence to think that I was practically a builder, right? Like, oh, I work for a general contractor. I'm a builder. Another life event for me that was pretty pivotal my father, who was my primary caregiver, passed away when I was 19. And so I purchased the house that I grew up in. And with all the knowledge of a receptionist at a general contracting firm, I renovated the house that I grew up in myself. And this is before YouTube videos, before Pinterest, before HGTV was a thing. And so I was hiring subcontractors. I was doing some of the work myself. My partner then and I were doing some of that ourselves. We got ourselves into credit card debt doing this. We took out 13 credit cards at the age of 19 and maxed them out in order to do the renovation. So good money lessons throughout all of that. (laughs) So I didn't get into the tipped industry until I was 21 again. And I moved out into California. And after all of that very serious, heavy life stuff, I just wanted something that was easy. And so working at bars and restaurants just fit the bill. They felt very easy. And the little foray into like, you know, working at a general contractor, doing some of the renovations yourself, is that something that had always been an interest or how did you end up? And I mean, that seems like a very random career field to kind of all of a sudden end up in at 18. Yeah, it was a friend of my sister who had reached out to my sister and said, oh, we're hiring. Do you know anybody? And she was like, oh, my sister's looking for a job. And so it was nepotism that got got me that job and got me into the construction industry, which is also a career that I've been in in tandem with the service industry for the better part of two decades. So I've worked in construction in the day and I've worked in the restaurants and clubs at night. I like to say dirt in the day, dirty in the evening. (laughs) So let's talk about this rebrand for a second. When you move out to California, I know you mentioned you were with a partner, I believe, and you took out credit cards with him at 19, 13 of them, maxed them all out. What kind of happened with all of that? We don't have to get into the details, but it was like, was it like you were leaving everyone and everything behind when you did this big move to across the country to California? Or what was the kind of genesis of that? Yeah. So the partner I was with at the time, she and I split ways when I moved out to California. So all of that debt fell onto my shoulders and I did not pay it for a really long time. I went into probably one of the most popular debt management strategies, which is known as ostrich, the ostrich strategy where you stick your head (laughs) in the sand and you ignore everything and hope it's going to go away. And so I avoided creditors for a number of years while I moved around. So that was another intro into financial services industry for me was dealing with creditors. And then what about this, you know, this, this whole tipped industry, like, you know, was it just something you thought I'm going to kind of dabble in or did you foresee that as like a a longer term strategy? Like, Hey, I'll do this 
part of my day and I'll do construction part of the day. It's a good mix for me. Or did it just kind of happen that way? It kind of just happened that way for me. I don't think I knew what I wanted to do. And I didn't have modeling growing up of people saying, you should follow your passion. You should go to college. You should explore. Take a gap year. Go figure out what you want to be in life. Those were not opportunities or modeling in my sphere at the time. And so the service industry was just, it was there. And a lot of people who are in the industry with me were figuring it out too. They were taking their time and being opportunistic, right? Like they were letting things come to them. They were exploring. And one of the things I love about the tipped industry, whether you're working at a bar, you're working at a club, you're working at a restaurant, you are talking to people nonstop. So you're getting to talk to people about what their jobs are and what their lives look like within those careers. And I was just so excited to kind of explore through other people's eyes what they were doing and what opportunities they had found for themselves. And so I always thought I would figure it out while I was in it. And I fell in love with the industry while I was working in it. And I also really liked construction too. So it did seem like a natural fit. So it sounds like the networking was an awesome part, but this is a financial independent show. I definitely want to talk about the money for a second. So a lot of people sleep on these industry jobs, these tipped jobs, like being a bartender or working at a club or being a waitress or a waiter. What type of income were you making? Obviously, you know, this is going to be dependent on you know, for listeners, where you're living and the types of opportunities available. But I'm just curious for your personal situation, Barbara, like, you know, was it comparable to that construction receptionist job? Were you making way more? Or were you making way less? I was making way more in the service industry <laughs> than I was making in construction. I will say on average, most people in the service industry make somewhere between $30,000 a year and $100,000 a year. Now, that $100,000 a year is more people in bigger cities people who are at high-end or fast-paced environments, people who might be working in club atmospheres, right? Whereas people who are living in the middle of the country in the Midwest would be towards the lower end of that spectrum, likely. I was mostly in major cities. And so my income when I was working service industry jobs was towards the higher end of that bracket. But there were were years I made $30,000 when I was moving around. And when you're looking at these service jobs, if somebody is interested in one of these, like, are there, I know you mentioned like larger cities versus smaller cities, but are there some kind of like rules of thumb or things like, you know, maybe you haven't thought about this specific type of gig, but it actually pays really well. Like maybe some surprising things to consider. I would say the industry naturally has a hierarchy, unfortunately, where Waiters seem to think that they'll make more than busboys and bartenders will seem to think that they make more than waiters and dancers will seem to think that they make more than bartenders. But I was never a snob about it. I went where the money was. And so if I could find a waiting table job that had, you know, high priced items, expensive bottles of wine, a private dining room where I could get large turnarounds. Those were where you could find more financial opportunities within the service industry. So it wasn't that I looked for specific positions, but I looked towards specific establishments and what their rules were. For instance, if you're in a club environment and you're a dancer, you might experience a club that has really high house fees and therefore it might not earn you as much net walking out the door as it would waiting tables at another establishment that has a high turnover as far as tables. So I would say it's more establishment. 
for people who haven't stepped foot in that industry, could you kind of just give us a quick lay of the land? I know you have specific experience in you know, working at a club, a restaurant, a bar, but you know, there's also other professions like ones that come to mind are like barbers and salon people that get tipped a lot. Like they earn a majority of their income, you know, more than 50% probably in tips. You mentioned house fees. Like how does that typically work and maybe just like quickly running through those gigs that I just mentioned, like how much are you actually taking home versus like what you're, you know, seeing in cash or tips? Right. So there are a lot of positions that fall within the service industry. Majority of them, especially the ones that I'm familiar with, happen inside of bars, clubs and restaurants. But you're right. Hairstylists, you were a boat buffer. So, you know, you, you can get tips in a lot of different, a lot of different positions. You could be somebody who, I mean, you teach a lot about side hustles. So, you know that there's the current gig economy with DoorDash and the food delivery services or Uber Eats or even if you're delivering people's laundry, I work, I live in New York City. And so a lot of things get delivered. There's a lot of service industry jobs where people are getting tipped a lot based on providing services within the home. You could be a masseuse and live on tips, for instance. So I focus on anyone who's earning tips. I speak a lot from my own experiences, which is why I highlight those three positions. But if you earn tips, then you are part of my audience and you are part of my message, which is to educate and empower people who live on a tip-based income to get better with their money and to build wealth. This is very establishment dependent, right? And there's a lawsuit that I just posted on my Instagram about some clubs in DC that were getting in trouble for requiring dancers to pull their tips. So I've worked in bars where you are required to pull your tips and then the house breaks it up for you at the end of the week, right? So it's very, very establishment dependent. If you are a barista, maybe you don't have anyone to tip out, but if you work at a restaurant, you're tipping out your bartender, you're tipping out your busboy. And if you work in a club, you're tipping out your security, you're tipping out the house. So it's really establishment dependent. When I was traveling in Australia, you know, one thing that was interesting to me is that it just wasn't a culture of tipping. Like they paid, I think, a little bit more. I mean, obviously more than like the $3 an hour type thing. Your kind of experience was a little different. Like you weren't just you know, you have like a super attentive waiter or waitress. But as a consumer, I kind of liked it a little bit more. Like it's a little more like what you see is what you get and you just pay that. As a person working in this industry, is there like a consensus between whether you would rather just make a certain amount of hourly income or if no, we like it the way it is, pay us the very tiny, you know, required minimum and let us have access to tips. The current federal minimum wage for tipped workers is $2.13. and which is unacceptable. It's embarrassing. And everyone deserves a living wage. So that improves in states where the minimum wage is higher. I can't speak for everyone in the industry on what they would like. I know that I'm motivated by money. And that was a big part of where I think I found success in that I provided a lot of service, entertainment, and enjoyed seeing that reflected back in the tips that I earned. But I wish I had earned a proper wage alongside of those tips. So it sounds like you were, you know, enjoying kind of the art and the craft and getting actually paid, which is cool, actually, like sales jobs, you're getting rewarded for the work you're doing. I like that a lot, like compensation based pay. What were you doing on a personal finance 
side of things? Like, were you investing? Were you putting a lot of this money into a savings account? I'm sure it's changed over the years, but let's talk about Barbara 21 right after she moves to California and starts getting these service industry jobs. Yeah, so I had always been a good saver. I was always really good at taking my money and putting it somewhere and watching it grow. What was not modeled for me was long-term goals. Retirement was not something that was discussed and an emergency fund was not discussed. No long-term savings goal. So at 21, I was able to save up $5,000 to go on an epic vacation, right? And I went backpacking through Europe for you know three or four months and that was on a tip-based income. I moved all around the country so I would save up moving goals. I didn't know that retirement was a thing. I didn't know that an emergency fund was a thing. I did not hear that. I did not see that. It was not talked about, discussed. I give a hard time to the financial independence space, to financial services, because I never saw anyone modeling good financial services in the tipped industry. No one came to my bar, sat down, and gave me a card and was like, we should really talk about your budget. We should really get you on a budget. How much is in your emergency fund? And if anyone ever did approach, it was in a very predatory way. Like, oh, do you want this usurious small business loan? Right? Most tipped employees are really left out of wealth building opportunities. And so for me, it's really important to just educate people about those things, investing, savings. I didn't get to it until later in life. I think for some people listening, you know, they may like have in their head like that this segment of people is like this very small subsect of, of America. But I remember when we met each other at FinCon, like you had a lot of great statistics. I mean, just could you educate the audience a little bit about like maybe what percentage of people who are earning an income maybe coming from this tipped background? Yeah. So over 4 million people in this country lived on a partially or fully based income, right? One quarter of those people are parents and two thirds of those people are women, People who work in the tipped industry are twice as likely to live in poverty than people who work outside of the tip industry. They also age into the most economically disadvantaged people in our population. So a big part of the reason that tipped people are left out of wealth building opportunities is because they don't claim their tips in a lot of instances and therefore are excluded from safety nets like Social Security. So by the time they get to retirement age, they have to keep working, right? So restaurants do not have 401ks, clubs do not have 401ks, and they also don't have anyone in HR telling them to set up an IRA, setting up paid time off for them so that they don't experience burnout. So there's a lot of missing pieces from this industry where most nine to five people have them automatically. And just to continue to paint this landscape, like one thing that comes to mind that's you know different about how tipped people receive money is every time they work, especially if it's a cash tip. I know it might be a little different with like card tips, but that's a lot different money management than the average you know Joe or Jill in America who's getting a paycheck every two weeks and maybe they have like some of that auto contributed to some investment account and some of it goes into savings. I'm sure there's a lot of other examples of how, you know, tipped people's personal finances are different. Maybe you could just give us a quick lay of the land for the listeners who are like me racking their brains right now, trying to trying to think of all the differences. Yeah. So I always say that tipped employees have to be smarter about their finances 
and better educated on benefits, employee benefits that they have to set up for themselves than the average American, right? So things that tipped employees have to set up for themselves, they have to set up health insurance for themselves. They have to go to the marketplace. They have to understand that they have to dig through plans in ways that most nine to five people don't. For instance, if you're with a company, they're likely giving you two plans to choose from, and you're likely basing your decision off of what the deductible is, or if there's an HSA option in our sphere of the world, right? So that's health insurance, right? 401ks, no access to that. So somebody needs to be teaching them how to set up IRAs, what a brokerage account is. They have to select their own investments. They don't just have somebody saying, here's a target date plan for you. Just select that, right? So you have to be a more educated consumer as a tipped employee in a lot of ways. When you work in a nine to five, you have this benefit package, this compensation package, and your employer's breaking up all of these things for you, but they still have real value. When you're a tipped worker, you have to set up a system to give yourself paid days off. You have to have a separate account with money for you to take a day off because even if you're in a state that requires your employer to give you paid time off, right? Let's say that you live in a state and your state says you have to give all employees five days off. Well, when you're in the tipped industry, likely taxes are eating up any wages that you're getting if you're claiming your tips. So even if you take a day off, let's say on a Thursday, you're not going to see that day off. You'll see it when you close out in your tax year, but you're not going to see it that week. And so from a cash flow perspective, it's not a day off. You're not getting paid and therefore you might not take off because you're not going to get paid. So tipped employees have to be more educated. They have to be more aware of the benefits that they're creating. It's more to manage. We'll be right back after a quick word from our amazing sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. It's a new year. 2022, but it's feeling harder than ever to find and hire the qualified people you need, especially for small businesses and especially during the great resignation. That's where LinkedIn Jobs comes in. They make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. I recently hired a video editor and having a platform where I could filter through qualified candidates made it so much easier. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach qualified candidates and beyond on the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Plus, with the LinkedIn Jobs filtering features, it's so easy to figure out who is right and who is wrong for your business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs is rated number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. But basically, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fyshow. That's linkedin.com slash fyshow to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And when you talk about these benefits, I mean, if you're working 40 hours a week, which I don't even know how common that is in some of these, you know, tip jobs, if you were hitting that 40 hour threshold, are, you, are the employers still required to do all the same things they would do to, you know, offer for a regular employee or do they follow kind of a different set of rules? As far as what? Like overtime? Well, just like, you know, if you're a full-time employee, do they have to offer you some type of insurance? Do they have to offer you anything? No, it's state-specific what they're required to offer, but no. And most restaurant clubs, bars, coffee shops, hair salons, they're all under the 50-employee threshold or the 15-employee threshold where a lot of those regulations live. 
Gotcha. And what about you mentioned overtime? What about overtime? Is that always something where they try to not let you get or they just don't have to pay you overtime anyway? Yeah. So <laughs> you'll have employers that'll ask you to clock out before you do your side work, or you'll have an employer ask you to not clock in until you're just ready to get on your shift, right? So there's ways that employers in this industry have gone about maximizing their own profits. It's a tough industry for employers as well. So no, you're not seeing a lot of overtime checks in the service industry. One thing you've mentioned a few times, Barbara, is claiming tips. And you know, most people are like, of course I'm not gonna claim my tips. I don't wanna pay taxes on that. But what are some of the downsides that come with not claiming your tips and you know, ultimately paying tax on them? I really encourage claiming tips for a number of reasons. The first reason is that we're all going to get older, right? And Social Security, we can have a debate about whether it's gonna be here, whether it's not gonna be here, but ultimately people rely on that, especially people who are living in low and middle income ranges. And when you don't claim your tips, you are ineligible for Social Security. So Social Security is a benefit that is based on how much income you claim over a 30-year period. And if you're not claiming an income, that year gets a zero and it's calculated and averaged over 30 years, right? So Social Security was created after companies had pensions, right? And then let's say that you worked at Amex and you retired from Amex and then you were homeless and then a reporter came and did a story on you and you're like, oh, I worked at Amex. So Amex doesn't want that level of embarrassment. They don't want to see their employees living on the streets. So pensions were created, right? And then 401 401s were created. Well, Social Security was created in between that to catch everyone who fell through the gaps. And the only people who still fall through those gaps are tipped employees and people who don't understand that they need to claim their income, right? So Social security is a big one for claiming your tips. The second one is housing, right? As financially independent, five-minded people, we know that real estate is a big generator of wealth, top two generators of wealth. And so people who are not claiming their tips become ineligible for traditional lending and are less likely to own their own homes. So that's another big reason to claim your tips. A lot of reasons that people don't claim their tips are a little short term thinking, right? So you mentioned they don't want to pay the taxes, but also there's a lot of other benefits that they feel might not outweigh that. For instance, health insurance. If you're under a certain income threshold, you're eligible for subsidized health insurance. And if that health insurance is sometimes more important than thinking about a mortgage, which may be five years down the road for you, or thinking about social security, which may be 30 or 40, 50, 60 years ahead of you. So health insurance is a big factor. Taxes are a big factor. And it's also kind of just that you have the freedom to choose whether you want to or not. Like if you didn't get a W-2 with all of your earnings listed out, <laughs> would you track that and know to claim it? Right? I mean, maybe not. If, if, if you're budgeting, hopefully you do. But if you're not, I think a lot of people are just like, I'll just guess. 
I don't know if you would still have like a pulse on something like this because it is a, a more of a recent development, but it's something I would been dying to ask somebody who maybe has a, a more of a connection to this type of industry. You know, from the pandemic, we've seen a lot of job shortages, especially in this kind of tipped industry where I know I go back to my hometown and there's tons of restaurants are like, no, nope, we're to go only. We're closing like four hours early. Can't even open some days when they're just randomly closed because they can't get employees. Do you know what is driving this? Like, where did all the workers go kind of thing? I have a lot of theories, <laughs> but I think that this goes back to benefits, right? When you don't have paid time off and you're not going to get paid to go get a COVID test and you're not going to get paid for the week that you need to quarantine, it's not as easy to stay in a job where there's no coverage for you especially in this type of environment for that. When you don't have savings that can float you for months when your restaurant, your club, your bar is closed, you're going to have to pivot. So I don't tell people that I'm working with that they need to stay in this industry. My mission is just this industry will be around forever. It was a great industry. It has a lot of positives. Let's get on the best financial footing while we're here in this industry you're also learning a ton of skill sets while you're in it and you can pivot at any time that you see fit. So I would say that the labor shortage has a lot of factors of why it's happening. But in this industry, I think a big part of it is that people just, they can't rely on income and they can't rely on coverage. You know, I think a lot of people, we mentioned two thirds of the industry is women. Those are typically caretakers, right? So staying home with kids, staying home with parents, staying home to take care of things that need to be taken care of. So obviously anyone who tunes into this show is trying to be a rock star with their personal finances. And hopefully we have people who are sending this to their friends in the tipped industry if they're not in the tipped industry themselves. You know, I'm just thinking like if I was a really savvy personal finance person working in the tipped industry, you can get really crafty with like how much you're claiming. And, you know, I'd actually, this is a good question. Is it a solo 401k that you open when you're, you know, working in the tipped industry? It really depends. Are you... W-2'd or, you know, are you more in one of those clubs where maybe you're getting a 1099? So it depends on your employment status with your employer, but you can definitely have a brokerage account. You can definitely have an IRA. And if you're one of those people who are lucky enough to be considered self-employed, which have a conversation with your employer, because I think a lot of them would be open to that if you were looking to maximize your opportunities as a independent contractor. But employers also have to be really careful because the states are cracking down on some of that right now. So if you are an independent contractor, then yeah, a solo 401k, it's a great idea. Because I'm just thinking out loud. I mean, you got a solo 401k. You can put 20500 in as an employee contribution. You got a Roth. You can put another six grand in. You have like your standard deduction. Like if you're savvy and you do the math, you could be like, okay, I'm going to claim $39,371 this year because I can literally pay zero taxes on that. And then this is not financial advice, but not claim the rest of those tips. <laughs> so like, I just feel like, you know, getting this education out there, exactly what you're doing, Barbara, like people can start to make these hyper-educated decisions and almost kind of gamify their taxes to pay zero, but also like actually contribute to their retirement accounts so they're not screwed when retirement comes. I think that the service industry is great for fine-minded people. And I think fine-minded people could change the industry, right? Like a big part of the reason that I love this industry is the flexibility of the schedule, right? People in financial independence are always looking for flexibility. 
we're also always looking for a little extra cash, right? So if we're floating like, you know, a period of time when the market's down, getting a service industry job to cover the market when it's down to cover your expenses so you don't have to draw down on any of your taxable accounts or anything, it's a great opportunity, right? So I think people are kind of sleeping on this industry. And I think that also teaching people how to establish emergency funds and sinking funds will benefit the industry greatly because I think a lot of the hazards and pitfalls that happen in this industry are from people who don't have good boundaries or don't have the ability to say no or walk away when certain situations come up. And so if we introduce that five-minded side, that personal finance, money management, and we give everyone in the service industry an emergency fund, it's going to change the game for everyone. I do think I see a decent amount of people like in the five space, but not so much from a like, hey, we're thinking about like being in the tipped industry to get to financial independence, but people who are really close to financial independence and just want a little something, you know, like the barista five type mindset. And I know for me, you know, like I'm probably don't have a ton more time left in the, in the corporate world, but I've always romanticized the idea of being like a bartender because I love good mixed drinks. You know, I've gotten really into like collecting bourbons and all that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's very interesting to me when I go somewhere and you have like a, somebody who really knows what they're doing as a bartender. For somebody who's thinking about getting, let's take that one as a specific example, like they're thinking about walking away from their W-2 and becoming a part-time bartender. Do you have any advice for like things they can do to actually get hired or, you know, pitfalls to watch out for? I think this current environment with COVID is a real opportunity for people. It is giving management and owners a little more room to take a look at a broader audience of people who can work for them. And so I think that there's a lot of opportunity for people who've never been in the industry to get into the industry now, right? YouTube is an amazing resource. You can watch people create cocktails. You can watch dancing tutorials. You can get tips and tricks for points of service when you're approaching your tables or how to make certain coffee drinks, right? So the internet's amazing and you can look up a lot of things. I would encourage people to go to the establishments that they're looking at, have a sit at the bar, talk to the people that are there, find out what your price points are, right? So one of the things that I talk to about my coaching clients is they know their numbers at work so well. They know what their drinks cost, they know what their food items cost, they know what their services cost. But if you ask them about their own costs in life, no idea, right? So knowing your numbers as well as you know your business numbers is one of the things we talk about. But if you're gonna reverse engineer your ideal service industry job, it's taking a look at those price points and seeing like, okay, well, if this is my average check and I need to turn these four bar stools or this section of tables or this many seats at the club, if I need to turn this, how many clients would I need to get in an hour on a six, eight, however many hour shift? And you can reverse engineer whatever service industry job you want. So let's get back to the proof in the pudding, which is your story, Barbara. And, you know, we kind of mentioned you get over to California, you're a good saver, you start to make some good money. You mentioned you were at the upper side of the 30 to 100k quite large average range of income that you gave us but you know let's just call it like 80 or 90k when do things start to change where you start seeing retirement as something that's possible and feasible and you start actually setting up the accounts and learning about you know financial independence and compound interest and you know all the fun stuff that justin and i talk about every week when i first discovered financial independence i was a coyote 
in New York. So I was working at Coyote Ugly, which if your listeners are familiar, there's a movie about it, but it's a bar. I was working at the bar in the East Village, which is the original. And you sing and dance on a bar. You abuse your patrons. It's a good saucy time. And I was earning really great cash, right? We're talking like those giant beer buckets full of cash. We would tip them over like there were thousand dollar nights, right? And so with all of that, I was like, ah, this is a lot of money. I need to make sure that this is not just the same as every other job where it's just walking in my life and walking out of my life. And so I think also being in New York, right, I started to see a lot of other people with lifestyle inflation. I started to think about like, oh God, if I ever wanted to own a home here, how would that be possible? And so I just started doing some research and came across some good podcasts. I came across Bernie Shrabi was one of my first podcasts, So Money, and started listening to that and deep diving. My spouse worked for a company that provided us with a financial advisor. And I remember we sat down, it was a free perk. And I was like, yeah, I'll sit down with this person. We can talk about money. And we sat down with him. And I remember he came back with our plan and told me that I needed $7 million to retire. And I was just like, what? And then he told me how much I needed to have in my emergency fund. And I was aghast. So that lit another fire under me. And I sought out to prove everything he said wrong. The one thing he was right about was the emergency fund. And my emergency fund is one of my favorite things now. Yeah, I could imagine in this industry, especially like an emergency fund is important because like you said, when you're off, you know, you're not you're not getting those jobs or you're not getting that paycheck coming in. But another thing with this industry, I have to imagine you were a bit of an outlier. Like once you started taking this seriously and you started like getting really into personal finance, what was it like if you tried to bring that back? Like if you're at Coyote Ugly and all of a sudden you have this epiphany and now you start trying to bring this back to your fellow coworkers, are they like, uh, get the hell out of here? Yeah, I remember having a conversation with uh, a manager who told me that I couldn't take a 15 minute break. I mean, we're dancing on the bar. We're hours and hours of dancing. You're exhausted. So I remember a manager told me that I couldn't. She's a friend now. She told me that I couldn't take a 15 minute break. And I was like, I'm going to take the 15 minute break. And that's what an emergency fund gives you. It gives you the ability to be colleagues with your managers and to take a proactive approach in your employment to make those decisions together about what is best for you. And I never had that before. And I think that it would change people's lives and change the industry if they were able to get access to this information. But when you had that like epiphany, you had that knowledge where were you able to bring it back and educate your coworkers, like not just using it as kind of like this confidence and leverage builder, but actually educating those who are at your same level or were people just not really receptive or not ready for that message? Majority of them were not receptive, but I still have a coaching client who I worked with there who still, we get together every six months, we review her numbers, we review her budget. And so they're out there. They're out there. (laughs) When you stumble onto Farnoosh and So Money and start to actually make these changes, what did that look like? Was you know, What types of accounts were you opening? What different things were you doing with your money that you weren't doing before? So as I mentioned, tipped workers need to have a little more separation in their accounts to set up a benefit system. So I remember going to Chase and saying, I need to open up six accounts. And she was like, 
I think they thought I was like doing money laundering. And so (laughs) once they got their manager out, they like, I brought my notepad, I brought my spreadsheets. I was like, this is going to be my FU fund. And this is my F up fund. And this is my non fixed monthly expenses. And this is my fixed monthly expenses account. And this is my flex account. And this is my monthly, you know, so I had to set up all of these different accounts. And at first it seemed like a lot of work to set the system up, but it is still the system that I'm operating on now. And it works wonderfully for people who are living on a tip-based income. There's a lot of income fluctuation for people who are in the tipped industry and having buffers in specific accounts and having sort of a framework of how to set those systems up and how to fill them with buffers as you're encountering certain expenses. It's really helpful. What year would you say it was when, you know, you really started this big change? And then if you fast forwarded to today, like what does that progress towards financial independence look like? That started in 2014, right? And I started to get super serious in 2016 about it. And I started helping people that were in my circle with their money in 2016. And so I would say it's been five years for the most part. And my life has been a 180. So you start helping people in 2016, but then something possesses you and you decide you're going to write a book on the topic. You know, your one-on-one coaching wasn't quite cutting it. You wanted to reach a broader audience. Can you talk about where that idea came from and what gave you the confidence to get started? Right. So two years of listening to podcasts, two years of reading all of the books, and I never saw anyone who looked or sounded like me in those audience, in those guests, in those blog posts. And, you know, at some point you just have to say, if it's not out there, then maybe I need to create it. And am I the best person for this message? I don't know, but I've worked in a lot of establishments and I've worked across the country and I have some experience and exposure with financial services and I have some experience and exposure with running a small business now. And I myself have gotten to financial independence after making so many mistakes. And I think there's a lot of value in exposing those mistakes and showing people that you can screw up a whole lot. And you can still get to financial independence, even if you're not a six-figure income earner. Well, I'm excited for this episode to come out. I know there's going to be a lot of people who have been underserved, who have not got to hear this kind of message, who have not heard someone who's coming from this tipped industry, talking about the things you're talking about, and are probably really excited for this book to come out as well. Where is like the best place they could go to, to check out more about your story, to make sure that they know when that book is coming out so they can be ready to snag it? Yeah, so the book's coming out in spring of 2022. You can visit me on my website, which is tippedfinance.com. There you can pre-order the book. You can reach out to me for one-on-one coaching. I also encourage people to follow me on Instagram at tippedfinance. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, but Instagram is where I where I really live. And there I try to post inspirational quotes, memes, industry-related news, a little bit of personal story from my years in the industry and what I'm up to and what I used to do. So I encourage people to follow me on Instagram. Awesome. Well, we'll have all of that linked up in the show notes. And I guess it depends when you're listening to this, 
whether or not the book will be out. But regardless, we'll have a link in the podcast show notes. Well, Barbara, this was a real treat having you on. I know our mutual friend, Sonny, said you have to have Barbara on your podcast. She's an amazing story. She's helping an amazing audience, an underserved audience, like Justin said. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and your wisdom. Thank you both so much for having me. I really, really hope this helps. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.